Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Geoffrey Farrer, and I'm a Methodist minister based in Putney in southwest London. Before I was ordained, I spent 10 years working in the House of Commons as a clerk, and I'm committed to connecting how we pray and read our scriptures to how we vote and live. Each week, I'm joined by guests from a different place on the pulpit and political landscape. And today, I'm very pleased to introduce the Reverend Lucy Berry. Lucy is an ex-advertising writer, art therapist and performance poet. She was poet in residence for four years on BBC Radio 2's The Jeremy Vine Show before training for ordination in the United Reformed Church. She's a mum in a mixed heritage family, currently writing a book about preaching. And we'll talk more bit more about that later perhaps. She has worked with prisoners' wives and taught in prison and although straight she is a founding trustee of the Open Table Network, a charity that helps establish within welcoming host churches safe, loving, LGBTQIA-led worship communities. Lucy, it's lovely to have you with us today and look forward to hearing all about and, and, and some of the insights here you bring as a poet uh, to these readings today. But may I begin, like uh, as, as with all our other guests, by saying, by asking you, we know that politics can be a bit of a contentious topic in the pulpit. When you hear people saying that politics shouldn't form part of our preaching, what's your response? So, thank you very much for having me. Um, the first thing I did when I heard that I was being invited on was to go away and look at the definition of politics. And that is <clears throat> activities associated with the governance of a country or area, and especially the debate between parties having power. Now, I, I don't mean party political parties, but mm. parties having power, you see all the way through the Bible. The second one is activities aimed at improving someone's status or increasing power within an organisation. That's very interesting as well, because obviously that happens everywhere, including church. And then lastly, the word politic, which you hear very seldom, mm. which means sensible and judicious. So I was interested in this massive shift that had happened from sensible and judicious to, to powerful and often contentious and often corrupt and very often self-interested, which had happened. And we assume politics is almost, well, it's either a neutral word or a dirty word. It's never a polite word, is it? Mm -hmm. And yet politic is a, is a lovely, lovely word. Mm -hmm. so I was, that was the first thing I did. I think if we're talking big politics, as opposed to party politics, then we have to talk about it all the time mm -hmm. because it's the sensible and judicious fight against evil mm -hmm. that goes on all the time in the world and has to be explored in our texts. I think yes. that's, how I, that's how I would, yeah, respond. Yes. And it's wonderful as a poet and somebody who's so good at shaping language, your first response was to go to the meaning of the word, which is so important. And perhaps we could have a few more politic politicians, perhaps. <laughs> <clears throat> the trouble is 
um, a politic politician isn't a sexy one, you know. No. They, no. They are, um, some of the ones I can think of, there was an incredibly elderly chap who many people won't remember called Alec Douglas Hume, who was conservative, which is not my not my uh, rave, mm-hmm. but who was very, very politic and rather charming and so boring that it was difficult to stay awake. So, you know, as we move further and further into media and social media, mm-hmm. politics is getting, well, we can see, can't we, around the world, how extraordinary it's getting. Yeah. And it's been interesting, actually, that idea of boring politicians, because um, one of my reflections from Parliament is people focused so much on the half hour of Prime Minister's question times. But so much of politics is the boring stuff that goes on in the committee rooms, uh, the detailed word by word analysis of legislation. That is what matters. That is actually what affects people's lives. And it's been interesting in recent years how some countries have deliberately gone to boring politicians. I forget in Italy, they went for a technocrat because after all the excitement of Berlusconi, they realize, you know, people sometimes sometimes boring is good because it means they're doing the job. But yes, very hard to sell that. Yes. before we plunge into our readings and consider about the role of boring people in politics, perhaps, um, just a quick roundup of the news. And there's a, a, a news story that by the time this goes out may have well have changed because we're, we're, we're all waiting to hear the uh, outcome of discussions between Rishi Sunak and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's coming to Windsor, meeting Windsor at the minute, trying to hammer out a a trade uh, agreement over Northern Ireland, uh, a very contentious but very important issue. Uh, Yesterday, we had the tragic news that at least 59 refugees had died as their boat carrying them to Italy crashed uh, uh, and sank just off the coast. And uh, the worrying news that Ofgem has set a new energy price cap, pressurising the government to offer more support to bill payers ahead of the rise in April. And added to that, we are, of course, in the church season, the, the Christian season of Lent. We're now settled into our Lenten observances. Uh, and uh, we're also marking Fair Trade Fortnight up until the 12th of March. Friday is the World Day of Prayer, which will be marked across the country in in different ways. And that's followed next week on the 8th of March by International Women's Day. So with all that in mind, and with (laughs) our metaphorical newspapers in one hand and our real Bibles in the other, we turn to our reading set for this coming Sunday, the second Sunday in Lent. And we've got some good meaty readings this week. We've got Genesis 12, uh, the call of Abraham, Romans chapter 4, where Paul reflects on that call, John chapter 3, and Psalm 121. So, uh, Lucy, where would you like to start this week? I think we have to start in Genesis because... Um, Abraham, later to become Abraham, um, has has just done precisely what he's been asked by God to do. And he has, at the age of 75, and I'm not 75, but I would find it difficult to move into the wilderness at this stage of my life. He's Mm -hmm. he's setting off with everybody, 
to begin away from home and away from everything he knows and trust in God. And I think that's, you know, I, the reason that the Bible is based on Abraham and we keep going back to Abraham, even when we're uh, <clears throat> only mention him in passing, is because his was the first great act of faith. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And of course, the promise of, you know, that he would be the father of, you know. Yes. Yes. And how would you, how would, and and do you wish to go straight to Romans or which links that to that idea of faith and stepping out in faith? You see, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in. That's what I thought. In how we deal with Romans and how we deal with uh, the other, the other reading. um, The John reading. Mm. Because Paul in Romans is talking about law and faith For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then Jesus in John is not talking about law. He's talking about earth and heaven. Hmm. I, I find Paul and Jesus so fascinating to look at together as as people explaining life to us because Jesus doesn't use law and faith he uses to Nicodemus at any rate heaven and earth heaven being I believe not something that he believes is always far away but that is actually a way of living Mm. you know the heavenly way of living, which is the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. You know, these glimpses of the kingdom that he's talking about. Mm. So I think that um I'm I'm interested in that Jesus is not is 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 not making a separation between earth and heaven that we often make. Whereas I think that probably Paul with his faith and his law is making this huge separation between faith and law yes i mean we, we it's interesting chatting each week to a different uh, preacher and we were saying sometimes you look at the lectionary readings and you think oh yes i can see exactly the link here very easy yes exactly <clears throat> and it's been very interesting to see how different preachers get the different links today we seem to have Two readings that deal with Abraham, the call of Abraham, and then this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. How would you be would you be tempted to sort of treat them separately or or, or unite them together in some common theme? Do you think? There is a common theme because the common um <clears throat> I mean, sometimes you look at the lecture and you think, I wonder what they're doing here because I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. What they're doing, and it's they're being very esoteric. And most ministers are, and vicars are not going to be able to do get this. And then, <laughs> and then other times you think, oh yeah, mm. I don't think it's this clear. Or rather, I think we need to. It, it needs 
<clears throat> unpacking more than it sometimes does. Mm. <clears throat> of course, the first reading is just showing us what Abraham has done, this massive leap of faith. Mm. Must have been a leap. And then this excitement of Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as a righteousness now to one who works and wages. Wages are not reckoned as a gift, but something due. The idea that that um, righteousness has its own reward. That's very, very poor, isn't it? And it's very Jesus as well. But then it goes on to... Oh, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, Paul is a lawyer. He thinks in law. He was he grew up in the law, even after he was knocked off his horse and blinded. Mm. He's still using the law. He's still coming from the law. Mm. Jesus is coming from love first, because he says, doesn't he? The law, all the law and the prophets are in love thy neighbor as thyself and love thy God. Mm -hmm. I did a sermon once where where um, all I did was look at pictures. Um, I was working in a in a multicultural church where um, English was sometimes the fourth, fifth language, mm. and where there were lots of different languages going on, and we did. And we did a sermon, which wasn't a sermon. It was really, <clears throat> let's look at Paul, depictions of Paul on in paintings, and let's look at Jesus. And one of the things that was so interesting about it was that when Paul was preaching, the interpretations that all the painters had had was that he stood at a distance from his, from his audience and he spoke to them as a preacher. Mm. whereas Jesus had to get away from people by standing in boats because they were around him all the time. Mm. And the paintings that you see of Jesus across history right up until now are of, of love, mm. whereas the paintings of Paul across history have this remoteness of, I am telling you something that is important, and people are listening. But there is not the relationship because he's Paul isn't talking primarily about the kind of love that Jesus was manifesting as he stood there. And I find that fascinating. So whenever I look at whenever I look at um, the epistles, I'm struck by how scholarly they are, how kind they are, how much they're trying to reach. Mm. people who Jesus would reach just by being there. Yes, They're very interesting. Now, um, and I'm sure somebody, some, somebody, we should have some defenders of Paul uh, around. Oh, I, love Paul. I don't know. But, uh, I love Paul. He <laughs> is our way in. He is our way in. Yeah. Um, now, if we've got those three readings, those yeah. three very different, no, no, there's three readings with differences in. Yeah, and we've had this before uh, in the series. Some readings seem to speak directly to the world, and some speak very much to the church. And these ones, you'd say today, these these are about matters of faith, and you know some of the issues that go deep to the heart of Christian uh, religion, especially perhaps within the Reformed tradition as well. 
Is there anything in these readings that speaks to the world beyond our doors, would you say? Can try to connect it with the issues of around us. Well, one of the sentences, which is wild and groovy as far as I'm concerned, is for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Now, you can read that two ways. You can read that the that that where there is no you can you can ring it, read it mm -hmm. that that uh, to break the law brings anger from mm. the charge. But then there's also this odd add-on, which is where there is no law, neither is there violation. In other words, where there, and he's only talking about Jewish law here. Mm. So what he's talking about is what he talked about uh, earlier, which is when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these though not having the law, are a law unto themselves. In other words, there is something higher than the law. Mm. But he doesn't use love. So mm. it's so. I sometimes think if you could have used love a bit more, mm. we'd understand his texts better. But of course, he's a rabbi. Mm. So he's talking rabbi language. He's not a prophet. He's not... Even when he's down on the ground, he's not down on the mm. ground way. Mm. So where there is no law, neither is there violation, means where our rules don't apply, neither does the violation of them. Now you can look at that in terms of um, oppression and say, mm. what does that say, suppose, supposedly, about... Um, The rules, there are rules that have to be broken to free people. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I know perfectly well that there are points at which I would break the law. Mm -hmm. If it's not in the interests of, of people, or if it's obviously not in the spirit of God's law. Yes. And I suppose what he's trying to mediate what Paul is trying to mediate is the difference between Jewish law and what he knows is God's law because he's met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Mm. He doesn't want to diss law. He doesn't want to disrespect the Jewish law because he's built mm -hmm. his entire life on it. Then he has had to break it all down, look at it and build it up again mm. in a different way. But he doesn't use the word love. Mm. but where there is a higher law and that's a very very great challenge um i like that i i, I often reflect i i've had in in this study um i had a very difficult conversation once with a member of my congregation who joined us and he came to me one day and again slightly like nicodemus came by night because and he confessed to me that he was an illegal. He was here illegally. He'd mm. come on a student visa from a, from part of Africa, but with no intention of studying because he had he was the breadwinner. He was going to fund his family back home. Yeah. And he said, "What do I do? What do I do?" And I, and what angered me was not his behaviour, but the fact that he was working 
like so many other people in a caring, he was a care assistant, a caring profession. And it was quite obvious that the subcontractors he was working for knew full well about his status and had arranged different means of paying him through an intermediary and all the rest of it. And they in turn were being contracted by the local council who, if they had had any concern about this issue, could have investigated and find out, found out. But there was complicity in it from all yes. sides because he was cheap and he would work. And as you know, in London, we are desperate, as in so many other parts of the country, for people who will work for minimum wage in the caring profession. So there, so there was somebody who was breaking the law, but it was a higher law that was being broken. It was those in power yes. who had really broken the law. And he was the victim. And, and I, I really struggled. And I, I, in the end, I, had, I said to him, look, we can try and help you, but you are going to get yourself into real trouble if you do not come clean and you know, confess to the authorities and say, this is my situation. I said, we can try and help you and we could perhaps give you some money for a lawyer and things like that. But he, and, and, and there's one of those pastoral encounters where you always think, what did I do the right thing? Because then he just disappeared from our congregation. Yes. And, I've had this sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. I've also, in, in terms of prostitution, I've thought about it a lot because I used to live very nice, very near to a nice woman who at the end of at the end of the month, her children who were beautiful and beautifully brought up, uh, were on bread and jam. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the month, she went to the pub and she sat until somebody picked her up. And then somebody took and she would say, Yes, but only if you buy my week's groceries. Now, that is systemic sin. That is mm-hmm. not her sin. Yeah. That yeah. is where somebody pushed into sin by the by the fact that her benefits did not stretch to her and two children. Mm-hmm. Now you know that's not that's not crime but that's if you look at law and higher law that's exactly where we're at small small people being oppressed by big systems and and i think i think jay pitt as well does done a lot of work on benefits and benefit sanctions and again i have advised people to break the law with regards to benefits i'm afraid because I remember one chap was in such a complicated situation, but at that time, I'm not sure if it's still true, but after six months of being on unemployed, you can keep some benefits even when you go into work. And he was like five and a half months, and he said, I've been offered this job, but what? And I said, Don't take it. Come back in after six months, because otherwise he would have been destitute, because if the job had fallen through and he was a builder, that was it. That was his housing benefit, council tax benefit, everything gone. And he would have been back to square one and he was struggling with alcohol. So I think there is that, you write right, the systems that set up and create sin. So uh, perhaps there's that idea of coming by night with Nicodemus. Oh, so sort of coming covertly. How, how can we talk about these issues when there is complicity around breaking the law yeah well there's this lovely thing it's a double thing isn't it mm-hmm. that's coming by night because he doesn't want his his colleagues to mm-hmm. spot him possibly learning something from somebody so contentious within the mm-hmm. within the community such a dangerous firebrand but he is also benighted 
Mm. He hasn't got yet what Jesus is about to tell him. So there's this lovely double thing of, mm. of secrecy and also he's in the dark until he talks to Jesus and Jesus begins to explain it to him. Yeah. And actually, and actually that that ends up with a mention. Hang on, let me find it. No, I've lost it. This is going to be boring if I look for it and I can't. Mm, don't worry. Yeah. But, there, but we have those, you know, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved. Yeah. And how often in our politics is it the politics of condemnation? And I think we are seeing this particular, this morning, very much on my mind, we've just been approached, our church, to help support some local asylum seekers who are going to a hotel. And of course, we have to be very strict and say nothing about it to anybody because these people are going to be condemned. I mean, uh, and we've seen that locally and we've talked about this on this podcast before. So again, these people are effectively going to come to us by night to get, yeah. we'll, we'll provide, a, perhaps provide a bit of space to help them. Um, and think, but but they are being condemned, whereas actually we should be saying, how can we save them? How can we save them from the situation that is forcing them to flee? And going back to Abraham, forcing them to flee for a better life. Yes. I mean, one of the one of the things that I can't help thinking about with with that phrase, politics in the pulpit, mm. is how often churches stand by things that possibly the individuals no longer believe in so mm. so <clears throat> collectively churches will oppress or will uh or will eject or will not welcome people of a certain kind mm. um, so for example lgbtqia is a perfect example of where I believe that very often people in within church, individuals within church, are uh, all in different places on 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 um, the sexuality, and some of them may well be in different places sexually, and, and from a gender point of view, and yet church goes on holding on. Many churches, I don't mean every church. Mm. Churches go on holding on to something which needs the gentle exploring to find out whether church is this, is church for excluding certain people. I was talking to a woman the other day who said that all the single mothers were put together in one part of the church separately for services. <gasps> What's going on? You know, the con the condemnation that can happen in our own congregations politically, you know, small politics, petty politics, tiny, fermenting mm. politics, bullying. That's also part of what's going on. Um, yes. I know yeah. I know we're talking, we should perhaps always be talking outwards about external politics, but I think the church that, the church that, that has dangerous politics inside it will also have da have dangerous attitudes towards some of the people we've been talking about now. Yes. And I just had to look up because um, 
I was trying to get the exact quote, but one that often sticks with me is John Major. And that, I mean, frighteningly, that's um, 30 years ago now, uh, which makes me feel very ancient. But (laughs) back to basic speech, he said, he said, society must needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less. And that always struck me, even at the time, as I was thinking, really? And I think, particularly pick up what you said, I think the issue of trans, trans people are facing. I, I just think we need to have more conversation and there needs to be a much more open conversation with people honestly expressing their doubts and fears and concerns. We need to hear the experience of trans people, but we need to to, to um, condemn a little less and understand a lot more. Mm. Because, and, and that applies to so many, and we come back to come back to Jesus' words, which often been misinterpreted, but I have not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. And saving the world, you know, it does mean condemning certain things, probably. You know, we've talked about sinful structures and such like, but it must, we must begin, as with John, about the conversation. And that's what's missing, I think, with the trans issue in particular, is most people have never encountered or knowingly encountered a trans person and certainly not sat down and had a conversation with them. Yes. Yes. Because... um when you think that in the same way that we are, we are all, I mean, uh, this is so obvious that it's almost frightening to say it. Mm. Um, scarily, as as um, as my father used to say, are you taking O-levels in the bleeding obvious? Um, <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll keep that one. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm about to just do an O-level now. Yeah. Is... Um, you know, it takes a very long time for me to know a middle-class white woman mm. of my age mm. because she's not going to have the same background as me. She's not going to have had the same dad as me, mum as me, mm. dogs as me. Bleh. She won't have had the same developmental traumas as me or she won't have had any. <sighs> she won't have a black son or she might. Who knows? Now, you, you you add that to the journey of a trans person arriving at the point at which they want to trans, you may never hear about that because it's private. Yeah. Or it may not be private, but unless you're sitting and thinking, oh, that's interesting, mm. I have that opinion. Oh, they're a conservative. Oh, they're, they're a liberal. Oh, you know. mm. At the moment, I suppose... The trouble with the internet, and there are so many wonderful things about the internet, but the trouble with it is it speeds everything up. Oh, yes. You know, conversations which would have taken years and should take years, I believe, are going far too quickly. Mm -hmm. People's reactions where they can post off something to poor J.K. Rowling in a moment. Mm -hmm. When they haven't thought through what the, the huge depth of what she was saying. Yeah. Very difficult. Luckily, she's not poor J.K. Rowling. She's just J.K. Rowling. Mm. And, I, and I, I, you know, there needs to be recognition that there is 
and perhaps what we need is more Nicodemus-like situations where people can meet in, in private and just talk honestly. And we know today, of course, we're thinking about Northern Ireland. We know we got to the Good Friday Agreement, that historic agreement that very sadly the Brexit deal almost completely torpedoed. How did we get there? Not by the glare of publicity, but by, again, going back to John Major, actually good, one good thing he did do was those very quiet, covert meetings that took place in private, in the darkness, between people, between enemies, essentially. And, you know, that is, that is how peace comes about. It doesn't come about through press conferences. It comes through people meeting in great secrecy often, to make those very first steps of understanding and saying, well, what can we agree on? And and personal trust. Yes. Yes. I mean, one of the one of the personal trust things that has been broken is the is the Nicola Sturgeon personal trust, mm. where they, everybody was trusting her on 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 the Scottish independence mm. and then this the 16 the age of 16 being a trans mm. this was this was this was by any by uh, anybody's ideas was rushed mm. it should have taken a lot longer a lot longer mm. so so she suddenly lost credibility when her scottish uh, independence idea was gaining credibility and mm. has gained credibility. Mm. So trust can be easily lost in politics. Well, it's very, very hard to gain because yeah. politics and estate agents are, are at the bottom together, aren't they, at the moment? We've had a very good uh, runaround there of our readings today, and I hope we've given people some starters uh, to think about. Um, and I think especially perhaps the Nicodemus reading, visiting uh, of, of somebody coming to Jesus and uh, displaying perhaps some of the faith that Abraham did as well uh, and what it might mean perhaps to love the world and condemn the world. Um, now, I'll just note just before the end, I'm going to be naughty now uh, and say, you said to me earlier, we won't do the psalm, and uh, which I was very surprised about because you being a poet, because you said there's just too much in it. There's too much good stuff in it. Did you want to have any word at all about, and, and of course the role of poetry, uh, speaking as a poet, um, the, the role of poetry in scripture and in our everyday lives? Do you think- the poetry... Yes, I would love to talk about it in a way. It was my mother's favorite Psalm and she she adored it. You see, it's promising something which is which is unprovable. Mm. And it's one of these things that, that can easily be said, which is it's all going to be all right in the end. Yeah. And and I worry about anybody who says this to someone when there are great big things to get over. I lift up my eyes to the hill from where will my help come? And I remember my son going to his first ever Sunday school and be, being told that if he prayed, 
he would get what he prayed for. And I had to say to him, darling, that lady was lying and we won't be going back to that Sunday school because mm -hmm. there are three answers to God says three different things. Wait, yes and no. And there's something about this beautiful psalm, which is so soothing. Mm. I think it can be used at a deathbed. I think it can be used at a funeral. I think it can be used for comfort. But it's not telling the whole truth that some of the other psalms operate with. I mean, by the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. Mm. It begins as a godly thought and end up and ends up with an ungodly thought which i would much rather be working with because i don't believe that i don't believe that it's a helpful psalm it's mm. a beautiful psalm it's a beautiful piece of worship it's astonishing in so many ways he who keeps israel will neither slumber nor sleep as opposed to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know that. Mm. But uh, a very, very devout minister who I know says that, um, that, that when people say God is always good all of the time, God is good all of the time, and we're thinking, mm, yes, but it's more complicated than that. Yes. So that's... You know, so the so the poetry of of the psalm is bliss, and the promise of the psalm is uh, what shall I say? A bit empty for me. Yeah, that's a terrible thing to say about a psalm, isn't it? No, no, that's fine. But just just a very big question, just to finish up with, I'd I'd like to ask you. We've got protest poets and poets who speak and, and, and you only on the Jeremy Vine show had to produce a poem to reflect on the news that day. What can poets say that the rest of us can't, do you think? Or should they? Okay, so there are two th there are probably two or three things. <clears throat> poets can, for example, uh, Isaiah, mm. Holy Mountain. Isaiah is saying, one day we will get on with the Gentiles and we will be able to get on with people who eat different food. Now, he couldn't have said that. So what he did was he talked about kosher and non-kosher animals lying down together. Now, mm. a lot of his listeners back then would have understood what he was doing. We don't, unless we are thinking about it very carefully. But the poetry allows for you to say something far more daring than you're allowed to say in public because you'll get stoned or something for it. So there's so there's that. Mm. There's also poetry versus poems. Mm. Now, uh, Mary in the Magnificat is saying, first of all, she's saying, wow, this is incredible. I'm, I've been given this opportunity. Who am I? I've been given this gift. Who am I? And then she's setting out the manifesto of her child. Mm. It's going to turn everything on his head. Everything is going to be turned around. The, at least the first, last, and the last first type of thing. You can see where he got his politics from, can't you? He got it from his mummy mm. early on. 
that's a poem. But mm -hmm. the poetry of the Bible and the poetry of somebody who is setting out to do a series of poems um, about, about something can 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 range very widely. Oh, the same with same with somebody who's who's um a songwriter where you can hear the themes going on and on and on. Um mm. my, my, the themes of my poems tend to tend to operate around that the Bible is still happening. I don't want to talk about the relevance of the Bible because I believe the Bible is still happening. You, when I walk around in Wood Green, I see the same things happening. I see the prodigals. I see the the prophets. I see the people standing on on street corners. The Lazarus is dying of starvation. So the the there's a there's an echo for me in everything that happens in the Bible because it's happening now. It has not stopped happening. We need to go on interpreting. Um, our own lives by looking at what happened in the Bible, but allowing ourselves to catch up with the fact that, for example, Jesus never spoke against slavery. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus never, never clarified many things that we would love him to have done. Yes. Oh, well, thank you for that. And uh, encourage us to look again at the poetry of scripture. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us this week, Lucy. Uh, well, really it was, enjoyed it. I don't think it was wisdom, but um, it was. No, a really enjoyed oh. it, and um, and perhaps we could think about there about who we think about Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, we think about who in our society, who in our world, would be good if they sat down together secretly at night and had a conversation. Who do we need to do that with? Yeah, uh, and perhaps uh, who who is stepping out in faith this day like Abraham? Um, if you've enjoyed this uh, episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with your friends. We also have online spaces for further engagement discussion about faith and politics on Twitter at pulpit underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit. We also have a Facebook group, which you can access through the Joint Public Issue Team's Facebook page and the website jpit.uk. That's jpit.uk. Let's go into both our politics and our pulpits this week with a blessing. Blessing of God the Father, who made from one every nation that occupies the earth. Of God the Son, who bought us for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And of God the Spirit, who brings us together in unity. Be with you and remain with you always. Amen. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Goodbye and God bless.